For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. With some hot news in the latest readout video from our free Wednesday wake-up email newsletter, to which, as always, you should subscribe. Because that's where you'll get such things as that agitated claims that July 4th, 2023 was the hottest day ever are only true if you don't count hotter days that happened in the past. The usual suspects were all over it. Canada's CBC said, quote, Monday may have set a global record for the hottest day ever. Tuesday broke it, end quote. NBC went with, quote, world swelters under unofficial hottest day on record, end quote. The Globe and Mail panted, quote, world swelters to unofficial hottest day on record Monday, then gets even hotter Tuesday, end quote. And Fortune said, quote, the planet probably just had its two hottest days ever, as scientists grapple with truly unreal meteorology and climate stats for the year, end quote. Probably. Unless it didn't. Because, though the herd of independent minds wasn't about to go off and check, the measurement was a computer model artifact. Plus, the commentators made up that bit about ever recorded just to scare us, because this model only manipulates data going back to 1979. So, it leaves out the 1930s, the Roman Warm Period, the Holocene Climatic Optimum, and anything else inconvenient like virtually all of recorded history and all of prehistory. Besides which, it probably wasn't even true of the last four decades. Numerous outlets, including the U.S. government's Voice of America, ran an AP story with the headline, quote, For the third time this week, Earth sets an unofficial heat record, end quote, or something along those lines. But after laying on the usual hype and the usual thick steaming layer, the AP piece noted that, quote, The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration on Thursday issued a note of caution about the main tool's findings, saying it could not confirm data that results in part from computer modeling, end quote. And NOAA itself tried to have it both ways, telling the press, quote, Although NOAA cannot validate the methodology or conclusion of the University of Maine analysis, we recognize that we are in a warm period due to climate change, end quote. Yeah, but a warm period isn't quite the same as heat record, let alone hottest day ever, now is it? And nor is it necessarily man-made, let alone a crisis. It could just be the kind where the cold, dark ages gave way to the much nicer and more prosperous medieval warm period. Which then yielded to the Little Ice Age, which was rather nasty, including in its violent weather. But now the climate is warming again naturally, as it does. Besides, as the Washington Post blurted out, quote, Tuesday was the hottest day on Earth since at least 1979, end quote. Which didn't stop Fortune from saying, quote, unofficial hottest day in human record-keeping, end quote, while admitting that the whole data set covers just 44 years. Possibly their reporters think that writing was invented back when Jimmy Carter was president. But it turns out that writing is rather older than that. And so is heat. In fact, the 1930s were hotter than the hottest thing since King Edward III of England until NASA altered its data. Indeed, the use of the satellite record to judge trends in Arctic ice is notorious, in some circles at least, precisely because it begins in the late 1970s at the tail end of a generally recognized cooling trend since the 1940s. So, if we had satellite records going back a century, today's numbers for Arctic ice or temperature might be nothing unusual. And what if the remote past, which is surely relevant to hottest ever, well, undaunted by its own revelation, the Post added, quote, 
As a result, some scientists believe July 4 may have been one of the hottest days on Earth in around 125,000 years, end quote. But of course, they cherry-picked 125,000 because, all together now, that's when the Eemian interglacial ended, during which temperatures were well above those of today and were entirely natural. So, there you have it. This scary story comes down to the hottest day ever in the very recent past, according to a computer model, not data. Ooh. And now, I'm going to interrupt myself briefly to ask you please to help support our work. Because here at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we don't get lavish government grants, we don't get big foundation money, and contrary to what our critics say, we're not in the pocket of the Koch brothers. We're dependent on our viewers and our readers to make a pledge, one time or monthly, big or small, just click here, a cup of coffee a month, that's what it takes to help us keep producing these videos and our newsletter and pushing back against the climate alarmist steamroller. And now, back to me. Now for a bit of relief. We've often said that a handy sanity test for climate alarmists is whether they support nuclear power. So we say it's big news that the government of the Canadian province of Ontario intends to use this new modular technology to build the world's largest nuclear reactor to fight global warming. How big, you ask? Well, not very, and that's a key part of the story. One facility, with eight reactors, that could power 4.8 million homes. So for any other global warmists looking to save the planet and their own minds, we ask, how many wind turbines or solar panels over how large an area would it take to do the same thing? The answer is staggering. The Bruce Nuclear Generating Station on the eastern shore of Lake Huron, where they plan to add this facility, occupies 932 hectares, or 2,300 acres, and it was built between 1970 and 1987, and its operating licenses have been extended repeatedly, at this point through 2028. So, even these older reactor designs last 60 years, which wind turbines and solar panels don't. And by the way, if you wrongly believe that it's hard to dispose of the small quantity of waste that a reasonably modern reactor creates, try figuring out what to do with all those blades and panels when you discover that they're clapped out after just about 20 years. Also, the proposed nuclear facility would generate 4,800 megawatts of power. But the largest wind farm in Canada, the Seigneurie de Beaupre, has a theoretical capacity of just 363.5 megawatts. But here's the key point. That wind farm occupies tens of thousands of acres. Its wind farm for alone covers 8,028 acres. And the Canadian News estimates that the entire wind farm site, quote, represents a strip of land parallel to the river approximately 95 kilometers long by 20 kilometers wide. Yikes. Now, whether this facility ever gets built, given the Canadian record on megaprojects, is another story. But while they're holding the hearings on it, watch for the usual suspects to show up peddling anti-nuclear hysteria instead of recognizing how much more power and how much more reliable power you get from this kind of plant with a blessedly much smaller ecological footprint in every dimension. In the newsletter, we also mock news that at the other COP, the one on biodiversity, there was much talk of a landmark biodiversity plan where rich countries would give poor countries a lot of money. Alas, quote, a proposal is now under discussion to establish the fund with at least $200 million by December, but donor countries seem to be reluctant to agree on an initial budget, end quote. Gee, who saw that coming? <laughs> well, us. But not the organizers or the zealots, evidently. 
Also, Canary Media tells us, quote, why vertical farming just doesn't work. Vertical farms save water, prevent pesticide pollution, and avoid extreme weather, but their Achilles heel is their massive electricity use, end quote. So, they were very trendy for a while, until power reality kicked in. Sort of like electric vehicles. Indeed, the whole smooth, glittering green energy transition is apparently going so well that, quote, the European Union will join an international effort to assess whether, instead, large-scale interventions such as deflecting the sun's rays or changing the Earth's weather patterns are viable options for fighting climate change, end quote. And given their splendid successes so far on climate policy, what could possibly go wrong if they tried to redesign the whole Earth? I mean, we ask you. Now, for some more lack of sanity, we come back to boiling oceans, a perennial alarmist favorite. And note also that in their world, all climate news is bad. So, Bill McKibben, who never met a climate scare that he didn't like, wrote back in May that one reason the seething seas are such a comprehensive, looming disaster is that the environment is getting cleaner. No. Yes. You see, quote, seagoing vessels have been rapidly phasing out the use of bunker fuel, the literal bottom-of-the-barrel tarry sludge that ships have generally burned because it is very, very cheap and because they are out at sea. Research indicated that the pollution from this stuff was blowing back to port and damaging humans, so, as Ryan Cooper reports, it is being replaced with cleaner fuel, end quote. But bunker fuel created aerosols that reflected sunlight, and that means more is getting through and heating the oceans. So, even clean air is bad for the climate. Great. And as you shake your head over the stuff experts say, we note the problem that normal people increasingly don't trust official institutions, which actually is a problem. What makes it worse is that instead of wondering what they did wrong, the experts who say retreat into even more self-absorbed self-congratulation. For instance, a new study in which a group of climate researchers have looked at how well climate researchers are communicating climate research meant to stampede the public into a panic over sea level rise. As Anthony Watts put it, quote, scientists decide that scientists are getting better at communicating scary climate stories, end quote, as they would to everyone's detriment. In which vein, the Ottawa Sun writes of, quote, an independent climate change research organization, end quote, which is called the Canadian Climate Institute, and which, by its own admission, quote, is currently supported through a five-year contribution agreement with Environment and Climate Change Canada and a growing list of philanthropic funders, end quote. So, not independent, in other words. Mind you, its annual report delicately avoids mentioning the actual amounts provided by government on the one hand and this growing list of philanthropists on the other, and an inquiry on this point then went unacknowledged. But evidently, being paid by the state to tell it what it wants to hear, which of course includes, quote, that systemic injustices and inequities stemming from historical colonization and ongoing discrimination have positioned certain people and communities at greater risk of physical, social, and economic impacts from climate change and climate policy, end quote, is independent, while being privately funded by citizens is venal denialism. Oh, and in its first in-person national conference, this outfit featured such speakers as, gosh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Trudeau's Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault, and his Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. That's independent state-funded style, and it's nice work if you can get it. Meanwhile, please send us a monthly pledge of a few bucks. 
here. So if you're not already a donor, help us not invite Justin Trudeau to speak to you. And speaking of credibility, at CDN we've had a lot to say over the years on the subject of ECS or equilibrium climate sensitivity, the mysterious number that supposedly tells us how much the world will warm from doubling CO2 in the air. And it's a fixed number of degrees Celsius for each proportional increase in atmospheric CO2. For the past 40 years, the standard IPCC estimate has been 3 degrees Celsius plus or minus 1.5, which is a pretty big margin of error. And you should also check out our March 2020 video explaining how recent data says it's much smaller. For our part, we checked out Chapter 7 of the new Clintel report on the IPCC's AR6, where the Clintel authors go over the tortured reasoning employed by the IPCC to avoid admitting that they were wrong about ECS. Basically, their position is this. Okay, maybe we got it wrong before, but one of these days the data will change, and then our estimates will be right. So we'll just skip a step and say we've been right all along. And another thing. You might have noticed that all the cool people are using CDN mugs like the one showing half a billion years of climate change. And now, in a new study, three scientists have created a new temperature reconstruction of those same half billion years, and they've matched it with three potential drivers of climate change. One of them is CO2 levels, another one is solar luminosity, and the third is galactic cosmic rays, or GCRs. And this is how real science is done. Competing hypotheses are measured against the data rather than against political expediency. And as for GCRs, they might sound like something out of Star Wars, but instead of being fired from a Death Star, they're fired by dead stars. They come out of expired supernovas, they travel throughout the Milky Way, including our solar system, and when they hit the Earth's atmosphere, they cause ionization, which promotes cloud formation which in turn affects the Earth's temperature because of the way certain kinds of clouds tend to reflect sunlight back into space. And over millions of years, variations in the intensity of GCRs hitting the atmosphere due either to changes in the solar wind, so Mr. Sun is also involved, or to changes in the angle of our solar system relative to the Milky Way, which we couldn't do anything about even if it was bad, contribute to variations in climate. They contribute so much, in fact, that there isn't much left over for variations in CO2 to explain, meaning ECS is very small, possibly vanishingly small. And as for how such a thing could be, we gaze into the CO2Science.org archive for a look at a paper by Henrik Svensmark and others about how Forbush decreases, those are FDs, in the influx of GCRs produced by periodic explosive events on the sun might affect clouds and therefore climate, and once again, correlations with the data suggest that Mr. Sun does have something to do with climate after all. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I don't think history started with the election of Joe Clark in 1979. <music>